0: For those who are new or those who are watching at the live stream, my name is Enrico, I'm one of the elders here at the church. And you know, so oftentimes, when you get up to preach the Word, you think, well, how am I going to make sure people realize they need the Word of God in their lives? Well, so hopefully, today, we all realize lots of stuff is happening. We need to hear from God and see what God has to say to us, right? We see things that probably even last week when you left here, I don't think any one of us was expecting the kind of things that have happened over the past couple of days. We've seen unprecedented things happening in our state, in our country, in this world. Um, for, For flights to be canceled basically everywhere, for schools to be closed for this amount of time, I can't think of any other time when things like this have happened. And so with all these things happening, we see all kinds of different responses around us. We see some people panic, some people think, oh, I just need to make sure I have enough toilet paper. Some people are just bemused, some people are wondering, you know, what is going on, why are these things happening? All kinds of emotions, all kinds of responses, but I think we can summarize a lot of what's happening, saying, well, people are troubled because of what's happening, and whether we're believers or whether we're not believers. We look around us and say, hey, this is a lot of stuff very sudden, and we feel troubled. And so today I would like to look at a psalm with you, Psalm 73, if you want to go ahead and turn there, a psalm written by a man who was troubled. Now his circumstances are not exactly the same, but what God says to him, what God shows to him is very applicable, I think, to what, we're, what we are facing right now as well. So let's turn to Psalm 73, and let's start with reading that psalm together. It says, a psalm of Asaph. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to, his, to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hand in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceive their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in times of trouble, no matter what's going on, we can turn to you and your word and you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And you have promised your, your word will not return void. And Father, as we study this together, as we hear... So, we listen to you together, Father. I pray that you would speak the words. Would you make these words real to us through your spirit? Amen. So, the psalm consists of a couple of different parts, a couple of different changes happen in the psalm. It starts off with a short introduction, and then Asaph looks at his situation from two different perspectives. He first looks at it from an earthly perspective uh, with an, an attitude of envy, and then he looks at it from a eternal perspective and then he closes with the introdu- with uh, with the conclusion So we'll look at these two and then see what how it applies to us here So the introduction here is in verse 1. He says surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart But actually there's already inspired scripture before where our Bible says verse 1 It says a psalm of Asaph, which is part of the original Hebrew and so it is part of the inspired scripture So who was Asaph? You may have read his name in some of the Psalms. There's 12 Psalms that he wrote in the book of Psalms, so pretty significant. Now, he was a leader of the the singing ministry in the tabernacle during the time of David. If we look in 1 Chronicles 6, uh, a couple of verses there, it talks about how David sets up the ministry in the sanctuary, it says, Now these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord, after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they served in their office according to their order. These are those who served with their sons. From the sons of the Kohathites, where Heman the singer, and the later on it says, Heman's brother Asaph stood at his right hand. So we see that Asaph was one of those who were appointed by David to lead the singing and the music at the the tabernacle. This was before Solomon had built the temple, and the ark was still in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Uh, And we see that as part of his ministry, he wrote songs. Just like David wrote psalms, Asaph did too, because later on in 2 Chronicles 29, this is several hundred years later, it says moreover king hezekiah and the officials ordered the levites to sing praises to the lord with the words of david and asaph the seer so there were there was this collection of songs the psalms of david and Asaph. so these songs that he wrote were not just oh well, let's write some songs to sing these are part of scripture and so Asaph writes this song here and this theme of his song is Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's about the goodness of God. And he introduces it here, and he says, okay, here's my, my kind of, my, my statement here. The objective truth is that God is good. And then he goes on in the rest of the psalm to kind of explore, well, what does that mean for me in my situation? Now notice he doesn't say, well, how could a good God, He's not saying, well, I don't know if God is actually good given what I'm seeing around me. He says, no, I know God is good. I know this is an objective truth that's not going to change no matter what my circumstances are and what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing. He says, I want to start with saying God is good no matter what happens, which is probably a good thing for us to focus on as well, no matter what we're facing, no matter what's going on, God is good. Whether it's our personal situation, whether it's this coronavirus situation, it doesn't change the fact that God is good. But then Asaph starts talking about his situation here. So he says, okay, here's my, here's the statement, I know, yes, surely God is good. And He says, to Israel, which is the people of God, and then he says, those who are pure in heart. Now, if, you, if you've studied poetry in the Old Testament, you know that... Uh, now, when, when we have write poetry, usually we rhyme the sounds at the end of the sentences. Uh, it's a good thing that the Hebrews didn't do it, otherwise it would be very hard to translate into other languages and still keep that poetic feel to it. So the Hebrews, what they did was they rhymed with meaning. So usually when you read a psalm or a proverbs, the first line and the second line either say very similar things two different ways or say the exact opposite or the second line expands on the truth of the first line, but the lines are always connected somehow. And so when he says here, surely good is good to Israel, to those who are pure and hard, um, he's not necessarily saying that God is good to the nation of Israel, to my people Israel, no matter how we behave. Um, he's saying, he's good to Israel, what I mean with that is those of us who are pure in heart. Because when we talk about the wicked here, those are also part of the people of Israel most of the time. And so he's saying that God is good to his people, to God's people. That's the objective truth that I know. But then the next word in verse 2 is, but, so he's saying, well, I know God is good, but something doesn't quite match up here. And so let's, um, let's see what it is here. And so this is where he starts looking at his circumstances from his earthly perspective. mean um, he says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. So something's not going quite right for Asaph. So he said, But as for me, is how he starts. So he says, My personal experience. So he says, Well, I know God is good, but my personal experience is different in my personal experience, I almost slipped. And he's talking here about a, a metaphor, a figure of speech, as if he was walking on a road, which is often used of, you know, we talk about our walk with Christ, our, our Christian walk. We often talk, think of this as a road that we're on. And he said, well, I had almost, I had almost stumbled, I almost slipped. Well, why? He says, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he says, the reason that I almost stumbled, the reason that I almost slipped on this on my, in my walk with God is because I started looking at these people that are not following God, which he calls the wicked or the arrogant. And then I became envious. I, became, I wanted to have what they had. Now, what is it that they have? They have prosperity basically well, I'm looking at all these people that are not following God, and they have prosperity. And then he spends some time explaining what he is seeing in these people. And first he talks about their circumstances, here in verses uh, 4 and 5. He says, there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Now, when we, talk, uh, when we use that term, it usually means something negative. Um, but in most of history, in their, this culture, in most, most of history, fat was a good sign, it means that you have prosperity, that you're able to afford food. It's only been recently in our Western culture that we've kind of changed that, and now we say, hey, the opposite is what we think is good, being skinny is good, but most of history was the other way around. If you look at you know, paintings from, from the past, usually the people aren't skinny, because that was not their ideal. And so the same, the same is, is true here in, in ancient Israel. He says, these people are fat, it means they have enough to eat, more than enough to eat. They're prosperous and they're blessed. Um, and then he says, they're not in trouble as other men, they are, nor are they plagued like mankind. So Asaph says, I'm looking at these people, I'm looking at what's going on in their life. I don't see any trouble whatsoever in their lives. And then he goes on to state, talk about their, char- their character, he says, and verse six therefore pride is their necklace the garment of violence covers them their eye bulges from fatness the imaginations of their heart run riot so he says not only are they not in trouble but because of that they're also proud they're violent and he says the imaginations of their heart run riot he's basically saying hey whatever whatever they want to do whatever they put in their heart whatever evil schemes they have Whatever violent things they want to complete, they're able to do it. So it's not just that they want to be violent, it's that they can actually carry all these things out because they seem to have things so well for them. And then he turns to the way they speak. He says, they mock, in, in verse, verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is their knowledge with the most high? So he says first that they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. So they speak wrongly, mockingly of the people around, the people that are oppressed by them. As he's saying they're making fun of, of us poor people that are not as successful as they are. Um, they speak firm on high, so they see themselves as being above the people that they're mocking. And then he says, not only are they making fun of, of other people, so they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. So they're not just speaking through, speaking against people, but they're speaking against God. And then later on in verse 11, he, he actually puts there, what are they saying? They say, they're saying, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the most high? Meaning they're mocking God. They're saying, oh, God doesn't doesn't know. God doesn't care that we're sinning. God is not able to do anything about it because he doesn't even know what is going on here. They say, God, God's powerless to stop us, basically. We are, we are successful and God, you know, doesn't matter that we're not serving God, God can't do anything to stop us. So they've set their mouth against the heaven. They're speaking against God. So they are, they have untroubled circumstances, they have a proud and violent character, and they mock people and mock God. And then he summarizes it, he says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease, they have increased in wealth. So he said, I know these people are not following God, they are wicked, obviously, because they're violent, they're speaking against God, but the problem is, they're always at ease, no trouble, and they increase in wealth, not just are they already not in trouble, they still keep getting more and more wealth. They're still increasing in their prosperity. And so, Asaph lists all these things. Now, I do want to make sure we know that these are all things that Asaph observes about these people. So he's not describing here, you know, how, how these people actually feel, or what is actually going on. There may very well be many things going on in their lives that Asaph doesn't know about But He says, if I look at the rich, this is what I'm seeing. No trouble, even though they're violent, and even though they're mocking God. Now, just thinking that through, just kind of applying it to us, what what kinds of people could we maybe look at it this way in our time? We maybe look at famous movie stars and say, hey, everything is going well for them. They're so successful, they're rich, everyone knows them, they have fame or maybe rich business people. Um, I, I just read this week that apparently Bill Gates just left his position at Microsoft with you know, $100 billion to his name. Um, you're like, you know, he, he is apparently very successful. Right? Why, why can't I be like him? Everything seems to be going well for him. And so we can have this tendency as well to look at famous people, rich people, and say everything is going well for them, even though I know they're not actually believers. And so Asaph, as he's looking at these people, he, he comes to a troubling conclusion here in verse 13. He says, "'Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure.'" Now remember, the pure heart is something that he had already mentioned in verse 1. He says, "'God is good to those who are pure in heart.'" That's this, this truth that he knows is true. But now he looks at his life and says, "'Well, apparently I have kept my heart pure in vain.'" Because, in verse 14, I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So I'm the one that has kept his heart pure. I'm the one that God should be good to. But I'm the one who is being um, stricken and chastened. So I'm experiencing all the trouble here, even though, according to what I know in my head, I should be the one experiencing the good from God. And not only that, not only is he not experiencing God's goodness, he's also saying, well, the goodness that I see in this world is going to the people that are not following God. So two of these things don't really, don't really ma- match up here. He's saying the, the bad people are getting all the good stuff, and the good people like me are getting all the bad stuff. So why was I good in the first place? I should have just been like them, and apparently I would have been better off. And so then he says um, in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he says, okay, I know that that what I'm saying now is probably not right and probably betraying those who are following God, but I don't get it. In verse 16 he says, when I ponder to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. He says, I I don't get it, I don't understand it. This is very troubling to me. And... what Asaph is saying here is something that it's not just his specific situation, but it is a dilemma that is faced by many people in many times, basically saying, hey if God says he is good to those who follow him then why are those people suffering and are other people having it better? And it's an understanding that was very common in the Old Testament and, and if you look at, for example, the book of Deuteronomy, where God gives the laws, the covenant between him and the nation of Israel. It ends, as covenants in those days always do, with a list of blessings for obedience. So he, God says, hey, if you follow my laws, if you, if you obey the covenant, you'll have, be, you'll have good harvest, you'll have plenty of food, your armies will be strong, you will always defeat the enemies, no enemy will defeat you. Um, and God says, if, if you do the things, all these good things will happen to you. And then the second half of the chapter, and and the longer half of the chapter, says, well, if you don't listen, if you don't keep the covenant, then you're not going to have good harvests, you're going to be hungry, your cities will be conquered, you'll serve other people, and if you keep persisting in your ways, eventually, the final straw, the final punishment for disobedience to a covenant, is that you'll be taken out of your land, and taken to the land, to a land far away. Now, we know from, from the Old Testament that that did happen. But based on passages like that, you could say, well, you know, what Asaf, Asaph's thinking seems to be right in line with that, where, um, you know, good following God leads to blessing and disobedience should lead to curses. But then you read other portions of, of Scripture of the Old Testament and for example the book of um, Job, and you see, well, maybe maybe it's not so straightforward. According to that principle, Job should have been the richest, most blessed man, which he was for a while, and then God, you know, Satan, you know, you probably know the story. Satan says, Hey, Job is only worshiping you God because of his riches, his blessings. And so God said, Okay, I'll allow you to. Make him suffer, basically. So we see that maybe this principle of obedience to God leads to blessing, disobedience leads to curses. It's maybe not as straightforward even in the Old Testament. Um, but it was very pervasive in people's thinking, and even in the New Testament, we see that Jesus' disciples had given in to the same thinking. And if we read um, John chapter nine, verses one and two. It says, as he, which is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Obviously not, not good. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So the disciples are saying, Jesus, you know, obviously this man is, is blind, it's not good. So whose fault is it? Did he sin that he was born blind? not sure how they think that makes sense because he was born blind. But, or, or was it his parents? It must be his parents then. So some direct sin led to this man's blindness. Just like, you know, that whole thing in the Old Testament. If you do something wrong, you're going to receive something bad. If you, do, if you do right, then obviously you wouldn't have been blind. If his parents hadn't sinned, he wouldn't have been blind, is what the disciples are saying. But Jesus then says, well, neither one. You're not, you're not getting this principle here. Um, and so, does it mean then that, that the book of Deuteronomy is not right? because we see examples? Well, no. The book of Deuteronomy and and Exodus, Leviticus, they never tell us that all these principles apply to individuals. It never says, hey, if you individually keep the laws, God is automatically going to bless you. Does that sound familiar? If you keep God's laws, if you do the right things, if you say the right things, God's going to bless you? we still see it today, right, it's prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, which basically say if you, if you believe hard enough, if you do the right things, say the right words, God's going to bless you. If you're sick, guess what? You, you just didn't pray hard enough or you don't have enough faith. Um, or, I once, when I was in, in Bible college in Singapore, I was meeting with a friend and he said, hey, this is a book that my pastor wrote, which I knew was a pastor of a, a mega prosperity gospel church. And so it was a book about communion. And he was saying in that book that if you're sick, you just need to take communion more often. And if you take communion more often, God will heal you. Because it says in, in 1 Corinthians it says, you know, some were sick because they didn't take communion. So, if you want to be better, just take communion more often. It's that same thinking, hey, if you do the right things, God's going to bless you. If you don't do the right things, God should be not blessing you. We see it in the Bible, we see it in the New Testament, we see it today, but God already was pointing out in the New Old Testament that that's not really how it works. We said Deuteronomy, yes, it applies to the nation. God made a covenant with the nation, and whenever and ever the nation of Israel disobeyed, those curses came to pass. So the whole, most of the historical books tell us exactly how God responded to the nation's obedience at times, the nation's disobedience, and was always exactly what he said in Deuteronomy. He said, if you obey, good things will happen. Guess what? It happened. But he never promised that that would happen to individuals. And you know, especially later in the old historical books, if you look at the lives of the prophets, those were the most faithful men. Those were also the people that suffered most. And so Asaph, is, at this point, he has that perspective, that simplistic earthly perspective saying, hey, I do the right things, God, should bless me. Those people do the wrong things. How come they seem to be blessed? It doesn't make sense. And so he says, when I I ponder this, when I think about this, when I try to figure it out, it just leaves me troubled. I can't figure it out. Then we get to the second perspective he describes in the psalm here, which is the eternal perspective. So we looked at the earthly perspective, which just led to envy. Now we look at the eternal perspective. So we we left off in verse 16 with Asaph being a very troubled man and then in verse 17 this is where the big change comes. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God then I perceived their end. So he says things changed, my understanding changed, my troubledness changed when I came into the sanctuary. Now, I don't think he means that he set a step into it and suddenly you know, there was this big revelation and he just felt different. But what happened in the sanctuary is that it was the place of worship, the place of teaching. And so he is confronted with the truth of God there at the sanctuary. He's starting to understand who God is and instead of his simplistic view of how God should work, he now understands who God really is. And so he starts describing the changes in perspective that he's having. First, he has a change in perspective of these these wicked people, these people that he thought were blessed and without trouble. He says, I perceive their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. So he's he's saying, their situation didn't suddenly change. They're still rich, prosperous, successful. But he said, now I understand where it's going to end. So yeah, maybe now they have a good life, but there's an end that's coming. I perceived when I understood the truth of God how their end is going to be. And this is is not a a place you want to be. He says, uh, you cast them down to destruction, they're destroyed in a moment, they're utterly swept away by terrors. And then in verse 20, he has this picture, it's like a dream when one awakes. You know, sometimes you have a dream, and you wake up, and you're like, oh, I know I had a dream, but I don't even really remember who was in it, what it was. That's what, what he says, that's what happens to the wicked. At the, when they die, or at the final judgment, they'll be utterly destroyed. Now, he doesn't mean that they're vanished away, we know that what he's talking about is the eternal destruction in hell. Um, but he says, you know, their, their prosperity, their success, everything they were counting on will be gone just like that. As, as quick as someone waking up from a dream and everything is just gone like that. So he, he realizes, okay, these people look successful, but obviously I don't really want to be in their place. They're not actually going to be blessed for eternity by God. And then he also shows us that he, his perspective on his own situation, his own behavior changes. So in verse 21, he says, when My heart was embittered, and I was pierced within. So this is how he describes how he was before he came into the sanctuary. He said, And I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So the first thing he realizes about himself is that his attitudes, his complaints, everything he was saying was, he calls it senseless and ignorant, he was like a beast. So he's saying, okay, I was obviously wrong in my complaints, in thinking that it wasn't worth being pure in heart, that it wasn't worth following God. He said, okay, God, I realize now my complaints were utterly ridiculous, basically. And then he also sees what God's goodness actually means. What he has. Even though he doesn't have the riches, the prosperity, the high position, he now realizes what he actually has in God. And it's a beautiful description here of of being in a relationship with God. Um, First of all, he talks about how how we, we have God's presence. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And it's interesting, because in the Old Testament, they would say, well, God, God's presence is in the tabernacle. Uh, but Asaph now says, hey, when I really understand, I, I understand that God's not just in heaven, not just at the tabernacle, he's actually with me. Uh, and he says, you have taken hold of my right hand. So he has God's, God's presence with him. He also has God's word or God's counsel. He said, with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. So not only do I have God, but I have God with me in and through his word. God is teaching me, giving me his counsel to guide me. And here's where he compares his end to the end of of these other people. He says, well, my end is that God will receive me to glory. So, you know, if I had to choose right now, I'd probably want to be like the wicked, because they're successful. But once I realize the end, their end is destruction, my end is being received in glory. So, you know, that shouldn't be too hard, too difficult of a a choice there. Um, And so he realizes that he has God himself, not necessarily God's blessings, but God's goodness is God himself. And so he starts to change his attitudes, and then he says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now, what did he desire before? He desired success, riches, the prosperity of the wicked. But now he says, now I see who God really is. He says, now I desire nothing on earth besides God himself. And he says the similar thing in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." So I wanted all these kind of things as my portion in life, as my part in life. I wanted what these other people had, but now I realize that God is my portion forever. Not just in this life, but in the life to come as well. And God gives him his presence, gives him his word, and here it says he also gives him strength. Because Asaph says, My flesh and my heart may fail. So if I'm left by myself, I'm probably still going to want some of these things. But God is the strength of my heart. God will give me the strength to desire Him. And so Asaph describes his, his changed perspective. First, he had that earthly, envious perspective where he wanted earthly blessings, even though it meant you know, that he. keep his heart pure and then he came into the sanctuary he understood god what god was saying who god is and he says well okay now i realize there's an eternity and if i look at the eternity then obviously i want to be on god's side and he realizes the blessings that he already has in god right now and so at the end of the psalm here he concludes and he says in verse 27 For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. So he he gives a conclusion here of what he has learned. He says, as he said before, the wicked, those people who are far away from God will perish, be destroyed, will be facing eternal consequences and judgment. Then he says, but as for me, and he used that phrase before back in verse 2, when he said, you know, I know God is good, but as for me, my personal experience is completely different. Now he said, but as for me, now my personal experience has completely changed. He says, the nearness of God is my good. So he started the psalm saying God is good to the pure in heart. Now he realizes what that means. He says, the nearness of God is my good. And then he continues and he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. And I love what Paul just said, you know. This time, times like these will tell you where, where do you believe your refuge is. Is it in toilet paper? Is it in making sure you take care of yourself? Or is it in God? And he said, you know, I, now that I know, now that I understand, now that I've come into the sanctuary and learned who God is, I understand that all I need, all I want is God. He is now my refuge. Doesn't mean you shouldn't buy toilet paper, by the way. You do need toilet paper at some point in your life. Um, but it's not your refuge and then he says I've made the Lord my refuge that I might tell of all your works." so not only is he gonna say well God is my refuge but I'm also going to tell other people about God about everything that God has done about everything that God is how God has changed my life so it can also be their refuge and change their life so he trusts in God he says I want to tell other people about God so then how does this apply to us, you know, a couple thousand years later, very different situation? Well, I think there's a couple of things here that are, are very important for us to realize. The one we kind of talked about it already is we need to make sure we have this understanding that God is good. We can't say, oh, well, given everything that's happening right now, I'm not sure if God's really good. Asaph says, no, I mean, I didn't understand God's goodness here, and how God was working, but I still knew one thing, God is good. And, you know, Asaph, because there are legitimate questions that people ask and say, well, how could a good God do such and such and such and such? But, but Asaph is not here giving a, an apologetic answer to the question. He's not answering, addressing the problem of evil to an unbeliever who rejects God because there's evil in the world. He is talking here to believers, to followers of God, who are maybe one, at least troubled and maybe even wanting to turn away from God, because they say, well, my circumstances don't prove that God is good. So I don't think it's worth following God. And so Asaph is saying, hey, you need to remember, first of all, that God is good. God is the very definition of goodness. We can't define God in our terms and then say, oh, does God measure up to my definition of goodness? God is good. God defines what goodness is. And so when we say God is good, we say, God, I know you're good. What does your goodness look like? And so in the midst of empty shelves, in the midst of the coronavirus, in the midst of no traveling anywhere, God is good, simply because he says he is. So that should be our starting point, no matter what what the question is or what the troubles is that we, we think through. Um, the second application here from, from the earthly perspective, the envious perspective that Asif gave is that clearly, it's say do not envy. So, we, you know, we, we sometimes go there and say, well, you know, being jealous of someone, being jealous for something, you know, I've heard of people fighting in parking lots because they wanted someone else's toilet paper at the grocery store. And you say, well, you know, maybe it's not a big deal because it's just a feeling inside me. I'm not, I'm not hurting someone by being jealous. I'm, star- I'm starting to hurt them when I'm actually starting to fight them for their possessions. Or I want to try to take what's theirs. But if you look through the Bible, the, the emotion of, of jealousy, of, of envy, is one that you know, is addressed as far back as the Ten Commandments. The, the Tenth Commandment says, do not covet your neighbors. And then there's a whole list of things that your neighbor may have. Uh, And basically he's saying, you know, I don't want you to want what other people have. And the New Testament, many times this teaching is repeated as well. For example, Hebrews 13, it says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, or some Bibles translate that as, as envy. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what Asaph just said? Um, So that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? So the author of Hebrews has the same teaching. He says, hey, I don't want you to, to have this love of money, this envy, this wanting of stuff. Instead, I want you to be content because God's presence, God's nearness is with you. So the antidote to envy is contentment. Now, contentment is not something that we just automatically possess, necessarily. Even Paul himself said that he had, had to learn to be content. In Philippians 4.11, he says, not that I speak from want." He's, he's talking to the Philippian church that have just sent him a, a gift uh, while he's in prison, so he can basically buy food and things like that, because in prison, in Paul's time, they didn't give you food. You just had to figure it out yourself. Um, He says, not that I speak from one, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So Paul, you know, God took took Paul through a lot of different circumstances. And Chris mentioned it as we go into 2 Corinthians. Shipwrecks, he was left for dead, he was stoned, he was beaten, uh, all those things. But he says, you know, I I learned to be content through the the difficult situation. I learned to be content and not to, to be envious of what other people have. So there, there may be a lot of things in, in your life that may not want, may not go the way you want it. You may think, well, why can why can these people see their family? Why can I not see my family? Why can these people do this and, and I can't? Why can these people why do these people still have a job and I don't? Well, God, Paul says we must learn to be content whatever the circumstance is. So whatever the difficulty we're facing, whether it's through all the things going on right now because of the coronavirus or or other circumstances, whatever circumstance God puts us in, He wants us to be content with what He gives us. And He wants us to know that He is in control. So we want to remember that God is good. We want to remember that we shouldn't envy, we shouldn't want other things. We should be content with God. And then the other thing that Asaph teaches us here, is, is that we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to think not just of, of the here and now, but of eternity. And of course this can come in different ways, but one of the things that Asaph here realized is, hey, there is actually an eternity, and everyone's gonna be faced with, how, how are you gonna spend eternity? Um, and, and it's interesting because when you talk to people that aren't necessarily christians most people very few people will actually flat out say yeah i I know for sure that there's not going to be eternity when i die it's just over like that most people just have this sense that there must be more and if you look at i think it's ecclesiastes it says god has put eternity in their hearts there's this thing in us that knows that there's more than just this earthly life right and most people will probably even whether it's through you know just hearing about it or through just figuring out hey there must be something late after this where evil is punished and goodness is rewarded. We'll say, yeah, there must be something like a heaven and hell. Um, But then the interesting thing is that many people have this idea that, oh, if I'm just good enough, I'll end up in heaven. They see it as like uh, taking a test in school. So God is there kind of grading your life, and as long as you get a passing grade, you get to heaven. And obviously the like failing grade, the Fs are for people like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, people that you know committed genocide, are responsible for millions of people's death. Obviously, they're going to fail the test. But for me, you know, I may not get an A I'm not perfect, but as long as I get you know C minus, I'm probably still going to be good to go to heaven. And that's kind of how we see how we see this. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us. It does not give us this idea that there's this, this scale, and God's going to say, "Hey, where did you fall on the scale?" Um, what we see in heaven, the picture that, uh, what we see in the Bible, the picture is that of courtroom. And so the question is not, "Are you good enough?" The question is simply, "Are you guilty or not?" That's the question that a judge or a jury answers in a courtroom, not, "Hey, are you good enough to make it here or there, but simply... You know, the jury goes out and say, the judge says, "Hey, is, is this person guilty or not?" And so, if we applied this whole test or, or grading picture to a courtroom, imagine there's a, a car thief in court, and he's um, I I work for an insurance company, and one of the things that happens is we sometimes we get called and say, "Hey, this car that was stolen several years ago and that you guys paid for, it was found." And so this week I got a call from the uh, Detroit Police Department and said, hey, this car was stolen in 2017, State Farm, we know you paid the claim. So it's technically your car. Uh, We we found it. It was there with three other cars in the backyard of this place. And this couple was arrested. Uh, Car didn't have any wheels, no doors, no, you know, it was basically completely stripped, but it was in their property and three other cars. So it was pretty clear that these were suspects. And so they were arrested, they were taken into custody. Now imagine these people go to the judge and say, yes, judge, um, we know we stole those cars, they were found right on our property, and obviously we knew they were stolen because we took over all the parts. It's not like we went to the dealer and bought it and didn't know. Um, but, but judge, just think about this. We stole these four cars. But just think about the millions of cars we didn't steal. <laughs> right? Would the jury go out and say, hey, no, they're not guilty of car theft because there's so many cars they didn't steal. No, that's not how a court works. They're guilty of car theft for just stealing one car. And that is how, how the Bible paints that picture. It's a courtroom. So it's not like, oh, you're good enough, like a passing grade. It's are you guilty or are you not guilty? And, and we know that none of us is going to be found not guilty if God looks at our lives. And that's why Jesus came to take that guilt die on the cross to take that punishment. And we who follow Jesus are now declared not guilty, not because we didn't do anything, but because Christ has taken our sin and we've been given his righteousness. And so we can, we, when we come to the courtroom, we can be declared not guilty because of what God has done. But for those who don't believe, who don't follow Christ, they can never be considered not guilty. And so if you're, if you're in that place, maybe you've thought of it, hey, I'm good enough to, to go to heaven. Well, that's not how God works. That's not how the Bible says God's works, because God's not going to let any sin come into, into heaven. There's not going to be any sin in his new world. And so the only people that can enter there are those who are forgiven of their sins through Jesus Christ. And so that's part one of this eternal perspective where, where Asaph said, hey, I realize that there is an end. We're either going to go to eternal destruction or we're going to be received into glory with God. Then the other thing is that, okay, we, we realize, you know, if we believe in Christ, we, be, we know we're going to be received into, into glory. Um, but then how does that eternal, how, do we, how, does, how does it work for us to have that eternal perspective in our lives? Well, there is still this sense that the Bible gives over and over that, you know, yes, we are forgiven in Christ, but what we do in this life still matters for eternity. And if you look at 1 Corinthians, for example, here Paul is talking about, um, he's talking to the Corinthians about the the division and the different teachers that they had, and he says, uh, now if any man builds on the foundation, so he says the foundation is... um, Christ is the one who lays the foundation. So Christ, Jesus Christ himself, but then he says then, we still have a responsibility as well. He says, if any man builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, if you put gold, silver, precious stones through fire, what happens? It stands but if you put wood, hay and straw through fire, what happens? Paul is a fireman, he can probably tell you exactly what happens. It's not going to stand, it's going to be destroyed by the fire. So the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So he doesn't lose his salvation, Paul says he will be saved, but there will be a difference, there will be rewards, there will be loss, and obviously we don't have time to go into the depths of this, ser- ser- uh, this, this text here, if, if you want to Chris preach on this months ago, but you can, as Mark said, there's sermons from five years back on the website, so you can go and listen to that sermon, but the principle is, Paul says, there is, what we do in this life will have impact in eternity. And so, the way I, I, I've illustrated this before is, say, say we have this rope here, and this represents time. Now, we know that eternity basically means that there's no end to time, but I wasn't able to find a, a rope that doesn't end. So you're going to have to work with me here a little bit. It, it does have a loop at the end here, so you can maybe imagine that time just keeps going there. Um, but, you know, we have this rope here that represents time, or our life, or however you want to look at it. Now, there's, there's quite a lot of eternity. Um, like I said, if we could make this rope, just keep going around and around, we would all be eternity, but what part of our lives, what part of this eternity do we spend on our life on earth here? Well, you see this little red thing over here, maybe? Our, our life on earth compared to eternity is almost nothing. Now, we often you know, live here and think, oh, it's... it's our life here is, is everything there is, but if you think of it, it's really very little compared to all of eternity. And so, meaning, having, having that eternal perspective means that we realize what this is, this is the crazy thing, what, what Paul and, and others are saying here is, Even though our earthy life is such a small part compared to eternity, what we do the decisions we make, the things we do in this little, this little portion here, are going to have an impact and an effect throughout all the rest of this rope. So the decisions we make, the way we go about treating people, the way we go about spending money, the way we go about um, our, our lives and the way we raise our families, it's all done in this little, little bitty piece here, but it's all going to have an impact all the rest of this rope, whether it's through these rewards and losses that Paul is talking about or whether it's through sharing the gospel with people that will then be part of that eternity with God. And so maybe one of the reasons why we're, we're focusing on ourselves, why we are concerned with ourselves and you know, what we see around us right now with people just wanting to get all these things for themselves to be safe from the virus Uh, Maybe one of the reasons we're so focused on ourselves is because we are we think this little part is so So much more important than the rest of this rope, which if you think about it is doesn't really make any sense But we can be so focused on on our our lives here and and our earthly perspective that we lose sight of this eternal perspective Um, There is a quote by Keith Getty. He is a songwriter uh, he wrote In Christ Alone, or one of the songs we just sang, that's um, by faith. He and his wife write a lot of, of very good songs for, for the church to sing. But he, he said this in an interview recently. He said, over 75% of what are called the great hymns of the faith talk about eternity, heaven, hell, and the fact that we have peace with God. So he said, the songs that were written over the history of the church, the, the songs that remain, over 75% of them talk about eternity in one way or the other. But he said, yet less than 5% of modern worship songs talk about eternity. Many worship songs are focused on this earth, Getty said. I believe that the modern worship movement is a movement for cultural relevance. It's a de-Christianizing of God's people, and it's utterly dangerous. This idea that Christianity is cool or easy is not biblical. So he's saying once we start focusing on, on our earthly life here, like Aceved, we're going to say, hey, these people have a better than I am, I should be like them. But if we keep our eyes on the eternal perspective, we're going to say, hey, yeah, maybe this is difficult right now, but guess what? God never promised me prosperity or riches on earth. God never promised me successful life on earth, but he did promise me heaven. And if I live my life now for him, guess what? It's going to impact that eternity, change that eternity. So let's make it very real, let's see, how, how can we, what does it mean in this whole time of this coronavirus situation? What does it mean to be a people of God that have an eternal perspective? What could, be, what could we do right now to show this to people? And I think one of the things we can think of is, well, who are the people that are most going to suffer through this? Or are going to be having difficult times with what's going on? Now, I think if you've done any reading, you've probably seen that uh, the, um, the coronavirus is more, most dangerous for, um, for old people, especially those 80 years and older. So maybe there's people around you that you know that are in that risky category of, of either old or bad health or having a lung condition. Um, and, and maybe they do need to stay home because for their own protection. Now, what can we do to help these people? I mean, they're still going to need to eat, they're still going to need toilet paper, they're still going to need groceries. So maybe one thing you can do is, hey, who is there around me in my community, in my neighborhood? How can I love my neighbor and, and help these people? Uh, or another group that may be trying to figure out how to make life work right now, or family with school children, Because with the schools being closed for six weeks, their lives are going to be completely changed as well. So maybe we can think, hey, as a church or as individuals in my neighborhood, in my community, how can I support these families that are now going to either have to find childcare or and Have to figure out, or have to stop working for a while, um, or what about people that have have lost or are at risk of losing their jobs? Um, there's a lot of people that may not suffer with the virus itself, but because of all the things that are going on because of it. And as to people of God, you know, we can sit here in our house and say, "Oh, at least I am safe." And I have to say, I was you know when this first started, I was like, you know. It it sounds like this is affecting all people very much, so maybe, you know, it's not that big of a deal for me. And then God was like, hey, guess what? It's not really how it works. We, We must be the people that say, hey, we must love our neighbors, and we must reach out and see how can we serve those around us, because that is what will make a difference for eternity. And then the other thing is, as Mark has been mentioning, hey, these type of things make people think about eternity as well, and saying, hey, if something bad does happen, what is going to happen after death? And so maybe it will even, as, as you reach out, as you serve, or maybe people will just say, hey, I know you're a Christian. What do you think? What do you think about this virus? What do you, are you afraid? Are you afraid you may die? And you can say, no, I'm not afraid, because I know where I'm going to go. And so there's, there's, there's opportunities to serve, there's probably opportunities to share, um, and hopefully as we think about looking at this with an internal perspective, we can put our priorities in the right places. Um, and then the, the last thing that Asaph here says that I think is applicable to us is, is know what it means that God is good to us, and that it's not going to mean that none of us is going to be affected. It's not going to mean that none of us is going to get sick. It's, it's not even going to mean that there may not be some people in our communities or in our families that are going to be in that group of people that will suffer so much that they will die. God has never promised us that because you're a believer, you're going to be immune to anything, else, anything the world is going to suffer when it comes to diseases like that. But Asaph said, yes, I, I, I realized that God didn't promise me anything good in this earth necessarily, but, I re- but he realized that the nearness of God is my good. So he says, and, and it's interesting because it said Asaph and David, they wrote songs at the same time. Um, David in Psalm 63, 3 says, Because your love and kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So David is saying, and, and this is kind of, a, you know, we often, or at least for me, I read this, and yeah, oh yeah, God's better than life, obviously, but he, he specifically says, Your love, or like Asaph says, your goodness, your, your nearness is better than life. Now we will say, well, God's love means that I am alive. He provides everything I need, right? So is David saying that it's better to be that his love is better than life? Basically saying, hey, it's you know, I should just die. I don't think that's what David is saying. I don't think his life would say that. He he he. What I think what he and Asaph and, and others are saying is that. God's love is worth giving up our lives for. Not saying that we die, but in the sense of you know, what Jesus said, if you follow me, you need to do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I think it's interesting. He says, if, if, if you follow me, if you want to follow me, you actually need to follow me, is what he says there. Um, but he says it, it's going to mean giving up your life for God's goodness and um if uh, i've been reading i've been reading books by and i think someone else i think graham mentioned the other week uh, dietrich bonhoeffer the german pastor and theologian who uh was in germany during second world war and joined the resistance against hitler uh, he wrote a lot of different books but one of them one of the, his most famous ones is called the cost of discipleship and um, in, in it he says when christ calls a man he bids him come and die so he's saying, hey, coming, coming to Christ doesn't just mean, hey, now you're going to get to heaven. He says, "Hey, when, if you look at what Jesus says about following him, he's, he's telling you to give up your life. Yeah, Not in the way of, oh, when you follow Jesus, you have to commit suicide, but in the way of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And so when David and Asaph says, hey, your, your love, your goodness, your presence are better than life, he's saying, yes, I've come to that point where I say I'm going to give up my own life I'm going to give up my own resources. I'm going to give up my own treasures because of God's love and goodness. So giving up, giving up ourselves, doing what God wants, even when it is hard, is better than living our own life because that's when we experience God's love and God's goodness. But now, and as it, it's have said, it's not just about the now, even though when we give up ourselves, our life now will change for the better, even though it may not feel like it necessarily. But even more so, it will impact all the rest of that rope throughout eternity. So those are the four things I think that Asa is telling us that are applicable to our situation. So, first of all, don't doubt the fact that God's good, no matter what's going on. Secondly, we don't want to be envious. We don't want to be the people that are going to say, hey, we just need all this stuff for ourselves to be safe. Instead, really, what we should be doing is, as Christians, we should be saying, hey, Here's all the stuff for you guys, because I want to give. Uh, thirdly, we, we, not, we must have that e- eternal perspective. We, we cannot face something like this without thinking of, hey, heaven and hell, and more so, how do we respond in light of the fact that there is a heaven and hell, and that there will be some sort of rewards and, and things in eternity that we can change by the way we live now. Um, And then fourthly, like I was just saying, we must know that God himself is our good, so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God and for other people. So the, the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor, those are the things that I think we want to make sure we do as we face whatever it is in these coming weeks, days, weeks, months, who knows how long it's going to take. Uh, And and this psalm, I think, so what Asaph has done, he's shared his experience in the psalm where his perspective changed from the earthly, envious perspective to the the eternal perspective, where he was taught by God that, hey, it's not about what you have in this world, it's about what's happening in eternity. And, And Asaph learned who God is and what God really means to him. And so, we have the same choice. Do we choose that, that envious perspective where we fight for ourselves and make sure that we have everything we need at the cost of other people? Or do we choose that eternal perspective where we spread love, where we protect the weak, where we take care of each other and, and give ourselves up for God and for each other? So I think that's the choice that, that the Bible, not just in this psalm, but puts, uh, puts in front of us. And so let's Let's pray and, and let's keep thinking together how as a community of God's people we can serve those around us. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort. But we also thank you that you're not the God who just wants us to be comforted, but also wants us to comfort others. And Father, as we think about what it means to be your disciples in, in a world that's changing every, every hour... Father, help us to put into practice these, the, the principles of, of discipleship, of giving up our own lives, of living for eternity, of reaching out to people in love. And, and Father, I pray that you would help us as a church, you would help us as individuals to, to live for your glory in these days. Amen.